Okay, here's the situation. Our daughter Mia is leaving for her first sleepover. We have friends coming to stay, and we just got a puppy. So I go on Instacart and solve everything in one order from Kohl's. Fun PJs for Mia. Oh, new bedding for the guest room. And a vacuum cleaner that actually picks up pet hair. All delivered in as fast as 30 minutes. With Kohl's on Instacart, there's no such we can't fix. Visit instacart.com to get free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. $10 minimum order. Additional terms apply. You're listening to a Roddenberry podcast. Protect your online activity today with the VPN rated number one by Business Insider. Visit our exclusive link, expressvpn.com slash mission log, and you can get an extra three months free on a one-year package. That's expressvpn.com slash mission log. Expressvpn.com slash mission log to learn more. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, supplemental number 67, the one with Nana Visitor. Welcome into a supplemental episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm John Champion. And I'm Norman Lau. And here we are shortly after wrapping up our coverage of Deep Space Nine. And what better way to mark that than with a handful of special episodes that will look at at the series as a whole and peek behind the scenes. And today, we are thrilled to have with us someone who was and is integral to the show and certainly needs no introduction to our listeners. She is Major... Colonel. Colonel John. Yes, yes, Colonel. Colonel, Colonel Kira... And we couldn't be happier than to catch up with Nana Visitor. All right, without further ado, we are so happy to welcome into today's show a person that you know as the mother of Jason Voorhees from the 2009 remake of Friday the 13th. It is Nana Visitor. <laughs> yes, that will be the leading sentence on my uh, postmortem. <laughs> hey, look, I, I like I, look, I was fine with that remake. I enjoyed it, and I was pleasantly surprised that uh, that, that was your voice. Yes. Well, yeah. it, to tell you the truth, uh, it wasn't my voice. <gasps> it I wasn't? had No, I had a manager at the time who evidently was going through some personal things, and she did not contact me when they needed me to uh, loop my performance. Because obviously that was in the rain outside, it all needed to be looped. And what the director had loved about me is that I just was this mother who was very reasonably trying to talk, you know, to people. It was, this was not a weird performance. This was just, (laughs) let me talk sense to you. Um, And when they couldn't reach me, which I had no idea about, they got a local actor to do the voice, and it was exactly what I would not have done and did not do, <laughs> which was all kind of weird and scary. Yeah, so, telegraphing. The yes, and scary. And, Spooky. Yeah, and that's sure. what I'm stuck with. And, you know, that's just sometimes what happens in the business. <laughs> well, I, we'll focus more on another role that you did today. We'll focus more on Kira Narese than Jason Voorhees. Yeah, but I, I but performed he, for forty nine years. I, I yeah. swear it's dog years, not right. normal years. It's it's forty nine years of my life that I was Kira. Well, you know, we we talk about production aspects on our show quite a bit, and it is so interesting that. Nowadays, in the early 2020s, particularly when you're talking about Star Trek in production, you're talking about series that have a 10 to 13 episode season, and then they're off for a year, and then they come back with another one. And even then, they're working difficult breakneck schedules. You guys from, you know, from next gen, well, and not to mention the original series, you're cranking out 26 episodes a season and you're doing six day shoots. And I 
can't imagine the toll that that takes on an actor, much less production staff. Well, I guess at the end of the day, it was a six-day shoot. It was considered that we worked Monday through Friday, but Friday went into Saturday by a huge degree. And uh, it was too much of a toll. Looking back, I don't know how we did it and stayed safe, and some of us didn't. So uh, it it was a little bit crazy because when you think that the human brain... Uh, when it's sleep deprived actually starts performing as a person who is inebriated performs you know you go well that's not a good way I mean we were all driving home at two three sometimes four in the morning and of course you know and it happens you see this is what I didn't know about falling asleep at the wheel I was so sure that could never happen to me because I thought, well, you just pull over, regroup, or you have some coffee, stay alert. You're not going to just drift off to sleep. That's crazy. That's not what happens. You pass out. And it absolutely happened to me on Benedict Canyon, which is not a great place for it to happen. But I was lucky. Yeah. But it, yeah, we were sleep deprived. Wow. Mm-hmm. Wow. Uh, yeah. Okay. That's that's not good. No. <laughs> let's, um, let, let's rewind up a little bit because I, I do, uh, before we get into the nitty gritty on uh, DS9 here, I do want to talk a little bit about your background as an actor. And I'm always interested in this kind of thing because you've got heavy theatrical roots and that's really kind of where the the career kickstarted. And I'm just if you can talk to us a little bit about that going from New York stage then to film and TV, was it a matter of where the work was? Was it a matter of a strong preference or just sort of spreading your wings a bit? It was all always following the cheese, you know, what what makes sense, where's the job? Who's calling me yeah. now? Go with yeah. that. I mean, that's just the way I grew up. There's a there's a gypsy kind of aspect to being in the theater and you follow the work. And uh, that's what I've always done. Um, and But really, what, what made me ready for Star Trek was stage and was the discipline of being a dancer and being able to go nope, that doesn't hurt. You got to finish the performance. You know, you're on stage, you've hurt yourself, you keep going because that's just the discipline of, you know, this, this, the, the proscenium, what it does and the importance and the ritual. And you're, you're set up to understand how purposeful and important a performance is. So going to Star Trek at two in the morning when you're exhausted, I was able to go, nope, there's someone who's going to need to see this, need to hear this message, or just need the comfort of a show. And I am going to come back into my body as much as I want to leave and go to sleep and be here completely for whatever we're about to film. Was it a pretty natural, easy-ish transition for you to make theatrical versus the intimacy of TV? I mean, I, some actors need to kind of reset their brains to do that. Some yeah. it's no, no, natural. It's a, no, it's, yeah. a, it's a reset. It's a different thing. Mm-hmm. It's, as, it's as different as talking on a phone as opposed to talking on a Zoom call. You know, there's there you and you after you do, uh, as we all have during this pandemic, done enough of these Zoom calls, you you learn what that is and and how to I find Zoom calls more exhausting because it's very intimate um, and very immediate and you're very close to people's faces. So um, you you learn what you how to be able to do that in a sustainable way. I'm sure you've both experienced that. Um, so that's the adjustment you make from stage to film. Um, on film, you are talking about a personality and a, a yeah, you're talking more about a character and uh, and a, 
inviting people into that character. On film, you're talking about relationships and uh, and allowing people to see what that connection is. I think. I think that's the difference. DS Nine is, I, I think, even more so than a lot of the other series that. Pretty much everybody had a theatrical background. I mean, and, and you see that especially. Most of us. Yeah, yeah. I mean, do, do you think that was an advantage? It gave you a, a, a bond? Right? You know, I, I heard about Armin always when he was on our show talking about having rehearsals at his house to prep then for the next week of shooting, which is almost unheard of in oh, shooting TV. And, and so yeah. useful and so needed especially for guest stars because when you think of you know people becoming a well-oiled machine in a show and understanding what the tone of the show is and how to do it in the costumes and the makeup and the things that are distracting you and the special effects how to deal with all that it, you know a, a guest star is just going well I guess we'll go through it a couple of times and uh, hope for the best at least if you have the connection with the other actors already done, that work done, it makes dealing with the rest of it a lot easier. So that was an amazing thing that he did. You know, uh, Nana, one of the things that that I've seen recently was the documentary, What We Left Behind. And one of the things that Ira brought up was how would we cast Kira today in a post 9-11 atmosphere because he said that the Kira that they wrote for pre 9-11 wasn't as, uh, as I guess incendiary or easier to write for that environment than say the Kira that they would write for today's environment if you were given the opportunity to revisit Kira again not necessarily from the start but say for a season 8 of Deep Space Nine like they like they previewed in the documentary, how would you go about reframing Kira after the events of 9-11 in this far more, say, paranoid and heightened emotional state of the world today? I, I think that um, it's interesting because I used to say, well, I wouldn't have been cast or, you know, you couldn't do it. Uh, and now I think it's even more important to do it. You know, when I hear of my elder son, who was a Marine in Afghanistan, and he, you know, we have this overcast view of the Afghanis and the fighters, and indeed the people who shot at him. But then he also had the view of the children and the and the, the people there and their lives. And he brought that home to me and that, you know, gray area, not black and white, not easy to fight uh, that war um, when you see the, the, the truth on the ground. And I think that that's the truth on the ground that we can bring. And again, that's why Duet is my favorite uh, episode because I think that what what she could bring is what um, Harris Eulin brought to that Cardassian, which is a kind of survivor's guilt, which is mm-hmm. a very real thing that we don't um, we don't examine that much. It's part of the human experience that uh, we don't talk about, and that can be something that is brought up darkness and light showed kira going yeah i did what i needed to do you don't get it but that was uh her at a particular time in her life i think now um at if if we shot her in her 60s it would be um it would be understanding and accepting her her role in the atrocities, her role in an impossible situations. I learned a lot from the documentary, and I, I kind of focused on some of more of the 
the more interesting quote unquote moments. Now you said earlier that as an actor, you follow the cheese. So you follow where the roles take you. So this may be a little bit of an on-the-spot question, and forgive me, but I really am curious. Um, when you say that you didn't want to have, or Kara didn't want to have a relationship with Ducat, and then there was a back and forth between whether it was Ducat or Mark, and there was a very <laughs> funny pause that Terry kind of pushed you to answer, what would you have done if Ira and the writers wanted you to have that relationship with Ducat as an actor? How would you have prepared yourself for that? First of all, I have to go back and say that that was something that I did actually say, please don't include this in Mm -hmm. on the documentary. (laughs) And usually people will will say, okay, yeah, no, we'll make sure that that's cut. But I guess it was too delicious for them to to leave it in. And I... It was some pretty low-hanging fruit for that that scene. It was low-hanging, but also that it was purposeful. It was looking at what women have to deal with and, and manage... And uh, there, there's a, a certain truth to it being difficult. Now, uh, we are not talking about sexual har- harassment because it, I could have gone and said, hey, I cannot deal with this or it's inappropriate. But there is something about the slow drip of something that is not wanted that women need to manage with people so I do want to address that, too. I never want to hurt people's feelings, but I do want to address that when there is unwanted attention that is constant, that needs to be managed so it doesn't become uncomfortable for anyone, that takes an energy away that I just want to give to Kira. I don't want to deal with things like that. So... You know, I want all the energy in my work. And that's something that I think that you don't go in and cancel people for it or get angry at them. But it's just like we are at a point of of evolution where we can say, you know what? We used to have to do this. Now we need to tell you that that that's too much work. Don't. If you can, don't put us in those positions as women. So I would say that um, before I even get to the other question, which was, tell me the original question. Well, the the cheese that you're following, if the writers yes. asked well, you Well, they did. To... They did. <laughs> yeah. I got the script. I got the script where it was Kira having a romantic relationship with Ducat, and it wasn't about Mark. Mark, by the way, is a ridiculously wonderful actor who I respect and like. But here's an interesting dynamic. Often he was already Ducat when I saw him, and I was already Kira. He was already in the makeup. I never got to see Mark, very rarely. I mostly saw Ducat. The minute he had that lizard thing on him, he was Ducat. And to a certain degree, I think we both acted in those dynamics. Ducat wanted Kira, and Kira did not want Ducat. So the minute we're in makeup, we're already in. So that also served the dynamics. Um, But when I saw the script, see... There's something very interesting that happens on Star Trek. You get to understand its purposefulness and importance to the people who watch it. You go to conventions and you meet them. And it's not just people saying, hey, that was fun on Saturday night. It's people saying, this is something I watch with my family. It's it's this old woman who very early on... maybe one of my first conventions I ever did, rolled up, just pulled up her sleeve, and it was in Europe, pulled up her sleeve and showed me the numbers on her arm. 
that she had been in the Holocaust. And she let me know what my character meant to her. Now, when I read the when I read the the script with me and Ducat, she's sitting by my shoulder. That woman is with me. And I go, I remember feeling this may happen, but because of this woman who is still with me with the numbers on her wrist, I have to say, I don't think this is a good idea. And not only for the woman, but for what I understood about Kira, if it had been another Cardassian, if it had been Harris Eulin's Cardassian, if he had not died in duet and we started a relationship, absolutely, 100%. But Ducat, who never let down in his ideas about Bajorans or you know, the, the dynamics never gave me an idea that that was, I could never forgive what he had done. I, that, that's where it landed for me. You're making me think of a few things here. One, which is is kind of a sideline question. You're describing the story about the uh, woman who, obviously affected you and your approach then and and you remembered her you've had a lot of roles where you've had a lot of fans i mean is there something that is specific about star trek and its morality plays that sort of affords you this different type of relationship this different type of interaction with fans of your work i mean you're talking well, about something very heavy there no no this is very different uh star trek uh is a very different experience i mean you know and i'm i'm writing a book right now about the women of star trek and i talk to astrophysicists i'm talking to an astronaut I talked to, I remember talking to someone who's a retired lieutenant colonel in the army, and she told me, and this this just got me, she said, she was there, Uhura was there, and they heard her, they saw her, and for a black woman to see someone in the future be respected and and an integral part of a team that's a big deal that gives her courage to go hey you know what i can do this too i can be heard and listened to as well i can have a leadership role um it's it's a very different show than most shows it's not the usual fan experience and let's not glide too quickly past that. Your book, A Woman's Trek from Uhura to Burnham, Star Trek's Female Stars on Six Decades of Change and Empowerment. That is the one that you're working on for our friends over at Eagle Moss. Do we have an ETA on that? Uh, you know, I don't know. I just sit down here in my little office and write away and, <laughs> and do the interviews and write away. Um, and I'm just reporting. It's really very fascinating and it's every woman's trek, but it's my trek, too, because what I didn't understand is how it would cause me to look back and go, wait a minute, what? What did I have to do? What? How was it? It wasn't easy. It was not easy. At the same time as we were encouraging people, you know, and here's the thing, too. When you play a role... You're dropping that character's thoughts in your head. And when we think thoughts over and over again, it changes the shape of our brain. We are building synapses. So, I mean, it's it's why meditation works. It's why, you know, cognitive therapy works. So I had a character who had integrity and who found purpose important, who would, you know, do these things that, frankly, I didn't spend a lot of time thinking about in my life. 
And she shifted me. This character shifted me. So not only, you know, did it affect other people and give them courage to be an outsider and feel and feel strength in that position. Um, it did the same for me. Is this your first book, by the way? Yes. Excellent. All right. I can't wait. Thank I can't you. wait to see when it comes out. Thank so I, I, I want to come back to what, what you and Orm were just talking about, and that is you, know, you, you mentioned this, this one idea of the writers uh, exploring this possibility of, well, what if Ducat and Kira had a relationship, and, and you rightfully and for every good reason put your foot down about that. Um, I'm curious about your approach as an actor, your specific relationship with the writers. There are some people who just show up and say, oh, cool, this is a script this week. Great, I'll do that, and then I'll forget it by the time we move on to the next week because I have to learn my lines for that. Some actors are very involved, and they want the writers to hear their voices as well. Where do you fall on that spectrum? And, and in your time at DS9, what was that dynamic like? I think that, you know, actors tend to want to well, I won't even say that. I'll say in my youth, I wanted to be heroic. I wanted to be likable. I wanted to, you know, be one of the good guys. And I think actors realize, uh, actors don't realize what writers get. So certainly our writers got that the interesting, the the real hero's journey is one where you learn stuff, where you evolve, where you make mistakes and have a moment to recover from them uh, and learn from them. That that is what really uh, makes a full-fledged personhood. So I would give my two cents but every time I expected to get a no and so I just you know put in my my thoughts and know that I was going to get a no 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 and once in a while a yes and it was almost like those no's you know when it came to the Ducat thing where I got a yes it gave me some, you know, credibility. It was like, okay, let, all right, all right. We, she's had twenty no's. Let's give her this yes. So that's the way I looked at it, and I always respected their final um, thought on the matter. I think they were great shepherds of our characters. So over time, did Kira grow? the way you thought she would or wanted her to or was this more of uh, sort of the you know the happy surprise and the, the the happy relationship with the writers guiding to where you thought oh okay well this is where she should be no i i was very happy with with uh where she ended up one loss i had which thank god was I didn't want to have a relationship with uh, Rene Aubergenois' character, Odo. I thought it was a very 90s thing that best friends become lovers and there's this tension. And I just wanted it to be a friendship. I wanted to go, no, men and women can be friends and this can be a deep and loving and intimate relationship without it becoming sexual and romantic. I'm glad I lost that one. Um, mm -hmm. When when I was asked how did I think they should leave it, I was very much in favor of them parting, of her loving him to the point of understanding what he needed to join in his life uh, instead of some kind of uh, e easy answer for them. They weren't All an right, easy couple. In that final episode, that's still the biggest emotional gut punch I get. <laughs> and I've said it on our show, and I'll say it again to you, that it's, it's two. It's two moments. Yeah, the scene in the tuxedo on the planet, that, that's touching and beautiful, but it's the scene in the promenade before where Kira says, I will take you there. 
I just ah, the hair on the back mm-hmm. of my neck stands up and and the the you know tears well up because mm-hmm. it's beautiful. I had that with Odo and I had uh, a moment with Renee where he told me uh, that he was dying and that he didn't have much time and we were doing a reading of poetry like we've done before at a convention mm-hmm. and he read a poem of saying goodbye and he looked at me as only Renee could do on stage and said goodbye knowing that this would be the last time that we would be on the stage together. And uh, I, I have that moment in my head recorded, and I'm lucky to have it. And now one of the most, I think, probably the most powerful, if not one of the most powerful episodes, I think, ever done in Star Trek history was far beyond the stars. Uh, agreed. And <laughs> there, we asked Armin this is the same question because there's the scene at the end where the two characters that are most in frame next to uh, Avery are you and and Armin. When Avery finally breaks down, when Benley, Benny finally breaks down and falls and you both catch him. We asked Armin the same question, but I wanted to ask you the same question, too. What were you feeling at the time when Avery fell and collapsed backwards into your arms, and then they let the scene continue on before they cut the scene? As an actor, how did you process that moment? Once in a while, um, and some people call it God showing up. I call it flow state. Uh, I know it is a flow state, but it's this, it's when an actor pushes an envelope and it becomes dangerous in the sense that you don't know what's going to happen next. Anything could happen next. You, it, it, it pushes the truthfulness to a place where this is actually happening in this moment. And the next moment isn't scripted. That's what that moment felt like. And it was dangerous and passionate and powerful and truthful. And, uh, and I felt that I was watching a character weep and I was, and I felt that I was watching a man weep for many things that he'd been through. We'll get right back to our conversation with Nana Visitor, but first, a word from our sponsor, ExpressVPN. Hey, Norm, you know what it's like. Um, you go to the holodeck, and mm-hmm. you know, you're know you just looking for some relaxation. There might be some loot music. Oh. Uh, there might be like a ski trip. Uh, mm-hmm. There could be a train ride, or you know, maybe you want to see what Minuet's doing. Mm-hmm. Indeed. Yeah, I mean, a Minuet could, could be up to something fun but but i don't want everybody else to know that i was maybe searching for minuet and and i know what you're thinking i know what you're thinking hey john you're on a computer you could just go into incognito mode and hide Mm -hmm. your tracks but here's where you'd be wrong because i know what you're thinking and i know what most other people are thinking um incognito mode does not hide your activity and in fact it doesn't matter what mode you use or how many times you clear your browsing history. Yeah, your internet service provider can still see every single website you've ever visited, even if you're looking up what Minuet's up to. That's why, that's why even when I'm at home, I never go online without using ExpressVPN. And it doesn't matter, I mean, who programmed the Holosuite, doesn't matter if they're good, as good as Felix. No, it doesn't matter no, who your internet service provider is. ISPs in the U.S. can legally sell your information to ad companies. That's why ExpressVPN is an app that you need. It reroutes your internet connection through their secure servers so your ISP can't see the sites you visit. It also keeps all of your information secure by encrypting 100% of your data with the most powerful encryption available. And most of the time, I mean, John, perhaps mm-hmm. you know this, I I certainly didn't know this until now. I don't even realize that I have ExpressVPN until 
I hit that button and it stays on forever. It runs yeah. seamlessly in the background and is so easy to use. All you have to do is tap the one button, as I mentioned, and you're protected. And it's available on all your devices, on your phone, on your computer, on your mobiles, on your pads, sometimes in your holodeck, even on your <laughs> smart TVs. So there's no excuse for you not to be using it. Yeah, just one button. You turn it on and then you forget it. And it's lovely to know that all of your data is protected. Nobody can see what you're looking up, and nobody can share that information for profit to someone else. So protect your online activity today with the VPN rated number one by Business Insider. Visit our exclusive link, expressvpn.com slash mission log, and you can get an extra three months free on a one-year package. That's expressvpn.com slash mission log. Expressvpn.com slash mission log to learn more. So here is an easier question, something that I'll probably, I don't know if you've entertained this before. Maybe you have, maybe you haven't. There have been uh, a, a few actors in our Star Trek alumni that have had some great success with starting their own podcasts in these interesting clusters of the friends that they are in the series. Say, for example, Robert yes. Duncan McNeil and Garrett Wong. Tom Paris and Harry Kim, who were besties on Voyager, and they have had great success with their Delta Flyers podcast. It has been, I guess it has been already told out there in the public that Condor Trenier and Dominic Keating from Enterprise are also going to be starting their own podcast. Oh, that makes sense. S there's so <laughs> oh it'll be insufferable yeah <laughs> so uh, in this current trend have you ever thought about reuniting with one of your say fellow female co-stars from deep space nine to maybe look at that type of a journey for yourself well i've done something that only i could do <laughs> i am having a i'm doing a podcast right now we're doing it very low-key uh, between one of my co-star's sons and my son, who happens to be the same person. So I'm doing uh -huh. um, a podcast with Django El Siddig, my son with Alexander yes. Siddig. And uh, we call it Sunday Dinner, which is uh, it's a tradition here. I love to cook. Even more than loving to cook, I love to feed people. And Sunday mm. dinner has been a tradition <laughs> here. And uh, so there's always cocktails and there's always interesting conversation. And basically, that's what it is. So we have the conversation, we have cocktails, and then we eat dinner. But the podcast ends at cocktails. But there's always a dinner to enjoy with whatever guest we have. And it's who we would normally uh, invite to dinner. And it may be someone from Star Trek. Uh, it may be someone, a young uh, actor just getting into the business. So that's, um, that's what's interesting to me to do right now. And what it touches on is what people in their 20s are dealing with. Um, I, I want to talk about those things. I, so look, I I had all these other questions about acting in DS9, but you said the magic words, which are food and cocktails. So <laughs> now the rest of the show will be that because now you're speaking to me directly. Um, okay, what's uh, you know recently? I need to know what was on the menu. What were the, what was the cocktail pairing? What uh, you, you gotta. You gotta give us details here, no, no. Okay, so the aviator is. I love cocktails from the 1920s or even earlier. And now you're really talking to John. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> right? okay. yeah. Oh so, yeah. Oh, you're and to me. if you have to get a hard to find liqueur, even better. So you know, this is a gin cocktail with lemon and creme de violette. It gives it a beautiful light purple shade, and it's a delicious cocktail. So yeah. That's uh, that was on the menu, and we had small plates recently, which I love to do because then I can just keep going and keep going. And it's it's tapas, but it's not necessarily Spanish. It can be. So uh -huh. there are small plates that are cheese and olives and breads, and then there are hot plates, mussels and white wine and garlic and parsley. 
and uh, sausage that's been uh, cooked down in red wine. Um, uh, I love to make, oh, well, I've always got pickled lemons that I've made in my refrigerator. Ooh, nice. mm. So I use those, I chop those and mix them with garbanzos and uh, lima beans, believe it or not, with nice. lots of cilantro, olive oil, and lemon juice and garlic. And that's something, I always make too much of that. And people are like, how could we possibly eat this? And it's like, no, no, you don't understand. This is my lunch tomorrow. Yeah. And maybe the next day. <laughs> so I'm going to be enjoying these small plates for several days. Nice. I, uh, so, uh, you know, like a vaguely Mediterranean-inspired... Uh, but it moves uh, around. Kind of th- it's but, always yeah, yeah. He's, okay, nice, nice. And then yeah. an aviator cocktail. Love this idea. Yeah. Okay. All right. Mm-hmm. All right. I'm just, just getting some ideas here. That's, uh, <laughs> that's good. Yeah. I uh, follow, I follow yeah. your mama, Nana, on Instagram. And oh. I was just wondering... Are you going to be able to, say, share some of these recipes, shoot some of them with mm. some really nice photography for Instagram? There we go. Because that well, would be nice. I am so low. I mean, I take my iPad up to my bar. I'm lucky enough to be in a house with a bar. And I just shoot them there. And it's no editing, no cuts, no nothing. It's just I give the information about the history of the cocktail and what I do or do differently than the original recipe. But I am very, very low. Um, it, But I do do that. I do cocktails once in a while. And I was just thinking, I haven't done that for a while. I got to get back up there because I just saw some interesting um, cocktails uh, that include an egg, which oh, was in the sure. 1700s. Not just an egg white, but the whole egg. In the 1700s, it was like a sailor drink to, you know, and eggnog is one oh, that survives. Yeah. That, yeah. you know, it's it's like, I guess it was healthy and gave them some kind of protein, but they were getting it down with, you know, ale. Ale and yeah. egg and, and certain, you know, spices. So I'm looking... I. I don't know. I'm not sure that I can do the raw egg thing, so we'll see. I, I look. I, I downed many an orange Julius in my childhood. Mm-hmm. Oh, put yeah. the raw egg in there, and that's the way to go. Yeah. And you know, look a whiskey sour with the egg white on it. I I think you know you get good eggs, and I I think you're golden. And they if have you need taste testers. <laughs> they have pasteurized eggs. They pasteurized. Although they they I I know that I don't know if they taste different, but they cook differently. Yeah. So that's uh, that. You know, like if you're doing something that uh, that is reliant on that egg, like say a molten chocolate cake, it's not going to turn out the same with a pasteurized egg. Look, Mission Log listeners, this is what we do. This is what you tune in for. (laughs) Is this kind of talk? Okay. Uh, so this you're is how the welcome. sausage is literally made. Exactly, exactly. So you're all quite <laughs> welcome. And uh, I, I need to know about this drink. I, I've been doing a little bit of a deep dive. Uh, I got a book for Christmas. It's like the the Oxford Guide to Cocktail History. Yes, and it's fabulous. Oh, I want and that. I can't. I'll, I'll send you the details. I can't remember the name off the top of my head, but even uh, you know the greatly lauded martini at the time it was created. It was called something else, like the McGinley or something. It was not nearly as cool sounding as martini, but the history of cocktails is fantastic. And uh, you know about the dead rats. The dead rats? No, no, please. Yeah. Literal or metaphoric? No, no, literal dead rats, which they, okay. you know, they used the worst kind of, it during Prohibition, they used the worst kind of alcohol, and to get it to have some kind of flavor, they found that, you know, just any kind of dead animal gave it a mustiness and a smokiness <laughs> and stuff. Yeah, so it was. Th- so then it was pretty horrible. So then they started adding things, and that's how cocktails were born. That's yeah, you got to flavor them. Yeah, yeah. See, so you were lucky if you were getting a cocktail with a dead rat during <laughs> prohibition. Otherwise, because the government was poisoning some of the alcohol supply out there. In the- yes, right. 
Yes, yes. Didn't know that. Literally poisoning supplies of alcohol, making people very ill and if not dying from them. This so. could be an offshoot podcast. I'm just saying that maybe... Oh, we're, we're doing this. Yeah. We're, yeah, yeah, you yeah. To, you need to do it. <laughs> yeah. Well, we, we've had, uh, we did have a guest from Eagle Moss Books, actually, doing Star Trek cocktails, which was <laughs> a lot of fun. We can go back and listen to that. But see, this is the problem. Every time food and drink comes up on Star Trek, the show takes a detour. And it's my little five-minute corner of talking about, well, in the replimat, they were eating this, but it looked (laughs) like this. So, yeah, this is going to get worse from here on out, folks. If Kira had a favorite cocktail, (laughs) what would it be? I, uh, you know, if, if there was a Bajoran version of beer, that's what I think she'd drink. A beer Joran. A beer naturally. A beer <laughs> that was very quick. Or is that a thing? It could be a thing. That's it why, is now. That's Let's why Norman it. gets a big box. Norman, that's it. yeah. Yeah. That was quick. My yeah. God. All right. Yeah. Beer Joran. Yeah. I think about these things. Yeah. Well look, knowing knowing Hasperat, it's probably got a little spice to it. It's probably I got a little kick so. to it. So sure. I would yeah. think so. Yeah. All right, uh, all right. So I we'll, we'll get back to the uh, to the acting talk and and to all because I, I am still thinking about something you said a moment ago uh, before we got into this glorious conversation about food and cocktail. You're writing this book. You've had experiences at conventions. So yeah, you do Star Trek for seven seasons, but it literally never ends after that point. You know, the, the Star Trek is always a part of your personal life your professional life um that's the sort of one of those gifts that keeps on giving but i always wonder because i feel like everybody has a different experience with this there are some actors who never watch their previous work and some of them for very good reasons i i totally get it mm-hmm. and there are others who sort of rediscover warm up again to what they did because in the case of something like Star Trek they realize that there is an impact outside of simply somebody watching a show on a Saturday night and then moving on with their lives so I'm kind of curious how this has been for you since the end of DS9 did you indeed have to sort of go back and rewatch you have to reacclimate yourself to the series and to your character has this been uh, and writing the book is this a way to sort of re-engage with and understand Star Trek from a different perspective I think I always had that perspective it, you know I understood right away uh, the, the, the purposefulness of it but I have gone back and looked at episodes but it was For a very specific reason, Uh, 20 years ago, I married my husband, Matthew, and he'd never seen the show. And I thought, okay, that's it, you know, that makes sense. And we went on with life. And then about two years ago, I went, okay, that's enough. (laughs) We're sitting down and we're watching the show together. And he loves it. He, Of course, he loves it. Um, and it's interesting to watch it through his eyes. He knows me so well, and this is a part of me that he had no experience with. He, of course, has experience with the conventions and the aftermath of it all, but the actual doing and what it was and what we did. So it's uh, it's been very interesting. Okay, but well, you've been married for 20 years before he watches an ADS9, yeah. but he's, you know, between then and now, he's come along to conventions, he's seen, he, he's met fans, so was he just not getting why that was? Uh, <laughs> no, he understood. He He's okay. always been really respectful of the of what it is, but it, I think it became a thing between us of, well, now, why would we do that? And then it just occurred to me, why wouldn't we? <laughs> why right. why wouldn't we? We can stream things. We're going to stream this and watch the whole thing. So uh, a little bit later, uh, we're going to come back and we're going to talk about a favorite episode. And we're going to give it a, a mini mission log treatment to look at morals, meanings, messages. But before we get to that, 
Um, I, I want to ask a, a question delicately, because in what we left behind, there's this great moment, a few moments actually repeated where you're, you're telling Ira, but, but wait, but we didn't talk about this episode. We didn't talk about this great moment. And we did. It, it's so fun and natural and totally get it. And there are so many great episodes. Are there least favorites? Are there ones that you could just leave behind as it were um you know um alum ring is you know (laughs) everybody wins 10 bucks yeah (laughs) yeah yeah cool we got to move on to shap two now because he said it yeah yeah Yeah. other than that other than that uh really no i would say you know the triple episode and i'll tell you why I was, I so wanted to have a big part in that. I wanted to be, and I, and I was, I was giving birth at that point. So they, they limited my role in that and they were quite rightly, you know, going, look, you, what you, you can't, but I was, I so wanted to be a part of that historical uh, moment and to be put into the old show like that dropped in. Yeah, of course. Of course, who wouldn't? Yeah. Okay, but, but you get a script like Move Along Home, and you read it. You're like, Alamo, what? What, yeah. what are we doing here? So what do you do? You just show up and you go like, all right, well, I'm, I, you know, I'm in it because I'm, I'm contracted to do it. I'm going to give it my best. Is that you practice hopscotch, I think. What yeah, you, do. you practice hopscotch. Practice yeah. hopscotch and you go, Kira feels this the same way I do, yeah. weirdly enough. <laughs> That's <Fair>. lucky. That's <laughs> yeah. good. Hey, that wasn't quite the end of our time with Nana Visitors. She was very generous to stick around and do a deep dive into her favorite episode with me and Norman. So if you would like access to that, that is exclusive to our Patreon supporters at patreon.com slash mission log. That is where you will find the full interview, along with all the other great Patreon perks like access to our Discord, early access to our shows, and exclusive swag. Patreon.com slash mission log. We will see you there. This is a Roddenberry podcast. For more great podcasts, visit podcast.roddenberry.com. When facing a family law matter, it can feel like an overwhelming and never-ending court process. It's vital to know that things will look better on the other side if you hire legal counsel with the skill and compassion to help. At Stangy Law Firm, we represent clients in difficult family law matters every day. Visit FamilyLawRepresentation.com to schedule your consultation. That's FamilyLawRepresentation.com. Stangy Law Firm, here to help you rebuild your life. Stangy Law Firm has an office in Wichita. Kirk Stangy, 120 South Central Avenue, Suite 450 Clayton, Missouri.